you, Ricky. Uh, <laughs> now that you're sitting, all right, I love this. I feel like every week we come up here, you know, and, and we, we talk about Ricky, and, you know, he gets up here, he says, I'm not going to preach, and he goes on for 10 minutes, you know. But, like, we love Ricky. There's all kinds of fun stuff. But I feel like one of the things we can always count on Ricky is he's always going to find a way to poke fun at Taylor, right? Like, always, he, he always seems to find a way, out of love, you know, and out of the brothership that they have, yeah, some, sometimes out of love. <laughs> and so I, I just want to take a moment and let you know, Ricky, that I love you, and I think that you're awesome, and I really appreciate that, you know, you switched your sermons up a few weeks ago. You said, I'm going to be preaching out of Exodus 14, and then you went on your, like, you know, one week I'm out of Exodus, which is a great sermon, by the way, and then he said, don't worry, I'm going to catch up. I'm going to get through 13, Dustin. Everything's going to be fine. You're going to just do 14, and I was like, awesome, Ricky, that's great. Two weeks later, he goes, you're, you're okay. You're actually going to have to do half of 13, Dustin, because I'm not going to get there. Um, and then all of 14, and I said, that's great, Ricky. And then last week, he didn't even get through like half of 12, let alone touch the half of 13 that he's supposed to touch. And then I'm just sitting here going like, so am I just doing the rest of Exodus? Like, I mean, like, what are, what are we doing? So we have a lot of scripture to cover today is what I'm getting at. So if you thought you were getting out early, uh, just pray for me, okay? Uh, so I want to share a story with you guys. And it's really... One of the earliest stories I have of my walk with the Lord. Uh, and, and as I think back on this story, uh, I remember I was about 16 or 17 years old. I was going to a, a couple different youth groups. Uh, at the time, I was not a believer. Uh, and I remember my youth pastor coming up to me. He goes, Dust, we're going to go to this, this uh, conference. It's called CIY Christ and Youth. If you've ever heard of it, they put on great conferences. They're really amazing. This particular conference was for mature student believers that were leading in their youth groups or in their churches that God was doing big things through. Now, remember, I just said at the time I was not a believer, okay? And so my pastor brings me to this conference, and I'm like, I don't even know why I'm here. I spent a whole week in, in classrooms learning about how to serve and how to learn and how to do all these things, and I, and I enjoyed it. I like learning. I, I like to study. I enjoy that stuff. But I remember looking through this conference going, this is not for me. This is, this is clearly for somebody else. And, and at the end of this conference, we're having this big worship night. Everything's going good. The, the conference speaker gets up, and, and he's sitting there, and he goes, and he, and he does one of these, like, altar call things. I, I love it. it was, I love altar calls. I think they're great. At the time, I was a little confused. And he goes, if you feel like God is going to use you in a ministry, if God's going to call you into ministry, just come join me on the stage, and we're going to pray over you, and we're going to lay hands on you, and we're going to do, and I'm like, this is stupid. Like, this is the dumbest thing I've ever heard. A bunch of 14 to 17-year-olds sitting in this thing, and they're like, I want to be used by God. Like, I want to be. Of course, everyone's like rushing to the stage. and like, oh, I'm going to go into ministry, and I have these plans. And I remember sitting back with my friends, and I go, this is like, you're stupid. You're stupid. You're stupid. You don't know what God's doing. And, and I remember looking at them going, what? <laughs> what are you, like, what is God doing in your life that is so huge? What is God doing in your life that you just know? that he's calling you into things. And then I blinked, and next thing I knew, I was on stage and ready to pee my, my pants. Like, I, I freaked out. Like, I, and, and I understand, you're stupid, you're stupid, you're stupid. I blink, I'm on stage. And it scared the living jeebies out of me. Like, I, honestly, like, I remember being short of breath, and I remember my pastor standing right about where Ricky is right now, and he's just going, get off the stage. Get off the stage. Get off the stage. I, I want to be off the stage. How do I get on the stage? Get off the stage. And he's yelling at me. We have this back and forth. And, and he's like, dude, get off the stage. And I'm like, I can't now. It'd be embarrassing. It'd be like, everyone's up here. and be like, ooh, I actually changed my mind. Like, 
you know? It's, and so he's, girl, Steve. After it's all said and done, dude prays. I get off the stage. He's got me, like, by that dad grip, you know, on the back of the neck where he walks you somewhere. Like, you knew you done screwed up, right? And, and so I'm sitting there, and he's like, what were you doing on the stage? And I'm like, I have no idea. I was going, you're stupid, you're stupid, because I know I can hear you. And then he goes, and then you just sprinted onto the stage. And I'm like, a what? Because you literally got up out of your seat and sprinted onto the stage. And I'm like, that doesn't sound like me. I don't run unless I have to. <laughs> and it was in that moment that I was talking with my youth pastor. And he goes, hold on, this, this actually might be of God. This actually might be a God thing. And I'm like, I don't believe in God. I don't, like, you talk about God, you talk about Jesus, I'm like, uh, yeah, okay, I don't know that I'm there yet, and he goes, no, 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 it doesn't, I think God's calling you in a ministry, and I was like, oh, Lord, help me, and it was actually just a few weeks later, I ended up going with another church, because I like to church hop, you know, you, you gotta, forgive me, uh, but you gotta, you know, there's a lot of girls at different churches, you gotta make sure, you know, you go around, and so I was at another church, and I went to this conference called Hume Lake Christian Camps, and a friend of mine, now a friend of mine, Chris Brown, he's a pastor down in San Diego. He was speaking, and I remember sitting in the balcony, and just about three or four weeks later, I accepted the Lord into my life. And you would think at that point, I would look back at my life and go, oh, God knew what he was doing. He was calling me into ministry. I just accepted the Lord. This is so great. No, I was like, I want nothing to do with it. <laughs> I don't want to go into ministry. All I know is every pastor I've ever met is poor. Uh, they're always complaining about how their cars are breaking down and their jeans don't fit and all these things. And, you know, I just don't understand it. So I was like, I don't want to go into ministry. And so I, I walked in this walk, this, this, um, this faith of mine where I served at churches and, uh, for about another year, year and a half. And then I was getting ready to graduate high school. And, and I really felt God calling my heart, like pulling on my heart. And he goes, you need to become a pastor, Dustin. And I was like, no. And I said, okay, Lord. At 18 years old, I was ready to go to school. I went up to the Spokane Moody Bible Institute. It has a campus up there. And I, and I went to this campus to go check it out. And I fell in love. I fell in love with this Bible college. I fell in love with the people. And I came back home. And I was like, I'm going to Moody Spokane. Like, this is going to happen. This is my life. And then I realized how much it cost to go to Moody. I realized that was not my life. Because I couldn't afford it. I grew up poor. I didn't have the means. I was definitely not educated enough to get one of them academic scholarships. Uh, that, that was just weird to me. I, and I started this journey, this journey of I know God wanted me to be a pastor. I knew God wanted to call me into ministry, but this journey of how do I get there if I don't know where I'm headed or how I'm going to get there. And so I started serving at the church and youth groups, and I started uh, volunteering, and I became an intern, and I actually ended up spending some years as, as, as a missionary overseas, and uh, going back and forth as a part-time missionary, and, and, and I, I fell in love with the Lord, and everything kind of happened, and it wasn't until I was 25 years old that God finally said, Dustin, it's time you can finally go to Bible college. Now, I went from 18 to 25. That's seven years. Like, that's the average life cycle of a bad student in college, okay, to, to get through. So I missed that entire section. I guess almost two if you're a good student, but I'm not one. So, uh, you know, and, and so seven years later, God says it's time. And I go to Bible college. I was very excited. I spent three years in Bible college. It was going into my senior year uh, when I got called out of Bible college and back down to California. Uh, I accepted a youth pastor position at a church. And that lasted really great for a while. 
And, and what I'm getting at here is, you see, there's times in our lives in which we realize that God is calling us to something. God is going to lead us one way. For me, it was this case of how I was going to get in a ministry, of how I was going to do things. And then God shows up, and you're like, okay, God, you're going to pave the way, right? And he goes, yes. It's just not the way you pictured. It's just not the way that you imagined this was going to happen. You're not going to go right into school. And I'm like, God, what's like 50 grand? God can come up with that money. He didn't. Uh, you know, in fact, I'm still paying off student loans from when I did end up going. Uh, and I look back at that, and I, and I just understand that the way that I was going to go was not the way that I wanted to go. It was the way that God needed me to. And we've been talking about in Exodus about how these Israelites, right, going to Egypt. Joseph leads them into Egypt through famine. He calls them in, and for 400 years, these Israelites are in Egypt, not partying it up, not having the life of love, but as slaves, 400 years, they cry out to God and say, God, where are you? 400 years, they say, God, you had a promise. When, is it, when are you going to cash in on that promise? And then finally, this guy Moses shows up, born an Israelite, raised an Egyptian, goes away after killing an Egyptian, disappears for a number of years, come back as an old cripple, 80-year-old man. And he's like, hey, guys, I don't speak well, and I'm old. What are you going to do? And I'm going to take you out of Egypt. And they're like, no. <laughs> no. And they're like, yeah, Moses is like, I'm going to do it. I got my brother who's older than me. He's going to lead us too. No. And then a series of plagues happen. God hardens Pharaoh's heart. God leads them through things. And at the end of the plagues, there's 10 of them. This is what happens. The Israelites finally get to leave. And this is where our story picks up in Exodus 13. And it says this. When Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them on the road through the Philistine country, though that was shorter. For God said if they face war, they might, not cha they might change their minds and return to Egypt. So God led the people around by the desert road toward the Red Sea. The Israelites went up out of Egypt ready for battle. Moses took the bones of Joseph with him because Joseph had made the Israelites swear an oath. He had said, God will surely come to your aid, and then you must carry my bones up with you from this place. After leaving Succoth, they camped at Etham on the edge of the desert. By day, the Lord went ahead of them in a pillar of cloud to guide them on their way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light, so that they could travel by day or by night. Neither the pillar of cloud by day nor the pillar of fire by night left its place in front of the people. You see, what happened here was the Israelites, finally after 400 years of slavery, they're saying, we're going to be free. We're excited. Moses is like, let's go. They grabbed the bones of Joseph. Joseph, in, in Genesis chapter 50, 24, says this. Then Joseph said to his brothers, I'm about to die, but God surely will come to your aid and take you up out of this land to the land that he promised an oath to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. And Joseph made the Israelites swear an oath and said, God will surely come to your aid and you must carry my bones up from this place. Moses is, is, is essentially cashing in on that promise that the Israelites made to Joseph. He grabs his bones. They're, they're about to exit. They're headed out. And here's the thing. When you look at where Egypt is on a map, all right, and when you look where, where Israel is, right, where the promised land is, there is a coastal route. It's called the Via Maris, and everything about this coastal route was nice and easy. You got that cool sea breeze coming in. It was an established route. Uh, there Actually, Egypt had fortresses that were set up along the way. Uh, now, some of those fortresses were being attacked by Philistines. Philistines were going to war. God even says, I can't bring you that way because if you go and see war, you're going to turn around with your tails between your legs and run back to Egypt. 
And so instead of going the nice, easy route, it was a little war-torn, but, you know, they've got God on their side. They end up going through the wilderness. Instead of going the short way, they went the long way. Because I'll tell you that when you, when you map out the road, it is about two to three times longer the route that they take to go all the way around. And it's, and it's not an easy road. It's through wilderness. There isn't like a, a particular path that's trudged out. They are just walking through desert. They are walking through unknown land. And it says that they go to the, towards the Red Sea. Now, now think about this. 400 years. They're excited. They're ready to come out. They're like, yes, we're going to do this. God is with us. And God so graciously provides them with a pillar of clouds during the day and a pillar of fire at night. Could you be more excited? All right, you're leaving Egypt. You're like, yes, we're, we're pumped. We're excited. You're going out. And then right in front of you is a pillar of cloud. And you're like, oh, look at that soft, fluffy cloud. Look at that. Look at God. Look at, isn't that cool? God's leading us out. I love this. And at night, all of a sudden, a pillar of fire. I think, by the way, fire much more manly than clouds, all right? Like, <laughs> it's like, yes, fire. And they follow it. And it says that they follow it on a long walk about three days towards the Red Sea. They were not going the short route. They were going the long route. They were not going the way in which they probably would have picked. They would have known about the VMRs. They would have known about the short way. Instead, God is saying, no, no, no. I have different plans. You're going to go the long way. You see, I, I think we have to understand something. Is that when, when the road gets long and you feel like your life is about to change or your life is about to fall apart, you have to remember that God's way is a better way. God won't lead you the wrong way. And I would imagine that the Israelites at this point, while they see the hard road or the, you know, what would be the hard road and the Via Maris, they go through the wilderness, they're excited, but I don't think they realize that their lives are really about to change. I, I think that they're excited because they've pillaged Egypt, they've taken its riches, they've taken everything, and they're leaving. But I don't think that they were necessarily excited about going the long way. I don't think that they realized that, that things were about to get tough. And then we jump into Exodus chapter 14 from here. And it says this in Exodus 14.1. It says, And the Lord said to Moses, Tell the Israelites to turn back and encamp near Pi-Haharoth, between Migdal and the sea. They are to encamp by the sea directly opposite of Baal-Zephon. Pharaoh will think the Israelites are wandering around the land in confusion, hemmed in by the desert, and I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and he will pursue them. But I will gain glory for myself through Pharaoh and all his army, and the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord. So the Israelites did this when the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled. Pharaoh and his officials changed their minds about them and said, What have we done? We have let the Israelites go and have lost their services. So he had his chariots made ready and took his army with him. He took 600 of the best chariots along with the other chariots of Egypt with officers over all of them. The Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, so that he pursued the Israelites who were marching out boldly. The Egyptians, all Pharaoh's horses and chariots and horsemen and troops pursued the Israelites and overtook them as they camped by the sea near Pi-Haharoth opposite of Baal Zephon. Now there's a couple things in this scripture that I think we need to point out. When we think about the Israelites leaving and we think about the Exodus story, right? This is finally happening. This is the culmination of, of the uh, plagues of everything. The Israelites are leaving. And I think sometimes we feel like we look at the Israelites and they got shocked. They got shocked that the Egyptians were behind them. It was almost like we think that they didn't know they were coming. 
But it says right here in chapter 14, the Lord spoke to Moses and said, Egypt is coming. Moses knew. Moses knew that he was going to be pursued. Moses knew that something bad was about to happen, that the, that the Egyptians were going to come and that there was going to be a problem. God tells him that I'm going to harden Pharaoh's heart again. They're coming for you. And, and I think it's important that we understand that for Moses, this shouldn't have been a shock. But we'll see later how he responds. I also think it's cool how God says that Pharaoh is going to have his heart hardened. And, and he thinks that the Israelites are confused. Why? Why would they go the long way? I, I, I can imagine Pharaoh like sitting there with his buddies going, this is a coastal road and you got the sea breeze and you got the niceness and, you know, it's, there's food and there's places to go. And why would they go south? Like, why, why would they go that way? I don't understand. Like, are they stupid? I mean, they're slaves, obviously, but, you know, like, are, are they really, what are they thinking? And Pharaoh goes, they must be confused. They clearly don't know what they're doing. And so Pharaoh goes back to his, his uh, advisors and his servants, and he's like, hey, we got to do something. I can't believe we let these dumb slaves go. They're lost, they're confused, we need to do something. And, and, and Pharaoh says, let's go get them. We're going after them. And Pharaoh prepares his chariots. He prepares an army to chase after them. And, and I also can't think about, I just, I love Pharaoh. Like, it's so funny how he's like, he gets slapped in the hand he's, and he just runs away. Like, I just got a new puppy. And, I, and Lord knows I love my puppy. But there's so many times in which I'm like, stop doing that. And I punish him and he comes back and does it again. It's like, what are you doing? Do you not, like, I literally just punished you for that. And I feel like this is Pharaoh. God goes, let my people go. He goes, no, plague. Let my people go. No, plague. Let my people go. No, plague. They're finally out. He finally had enough. And he goes, you know what? I think I'm in for one more beating. Like, I think I'm in for this. And so he goes to his advisors, and he's like, we're going to go get him. And, and I can't imagine how one advisor, not one person, looks at Pharaoh and says, mm, I can think of ten. Ten really good reasons, Pharaoh, why we should not go after the Israelites. Not one, not two, ten. This is a bad idea. I, it says all of his advisors are on board, that they're ready to go. Not a single person goes, mm, bad idea, Pharaoh. What? What do you Blows my mind. It says Pharaoh gets 600 chariots. Now, we can look at this, and we can know that a chariot contains or, or drives roughly two people. You have one driver and one fighter. So he's got 1,200 people getting ready to go, and it says all the other chariots in Egypt. Lord knows how many that is. I don't know. could be a couple hundred. could be a few thousand. I don't know what that is, but we're looking at a, roughly a force of a few thousand people probably going after the Israelites. And it says that they're getting ready to go. So while Pharaoh is preparing his army... While Pharaoh is going, we're going to go get these guys. I love how like the next verse over in, in verse 8, it says this. And that the Israelites were walking out of Egypt boldly. Boldly. Like, I, I love that because it's, it's this kind of this cool moment. 400 years, here they go. The Israelites are leaving. And you would think after 10 plagues, you would think that after God showing up in a big way, you would walk out with your chest puffed out. You're kind of excited. You're like, I've got God. i got a pillar of cloud in front of me. At night, it turns to fire. It's pretty cool. You know, they're excited. They're pumped. They're like, here we go. And their chests are puffed out, and they're walking out of Egypt boldly. We've got all of Egypt's riches. We've got everything. It says that people were giving them their gold on the way out. Please, get out of here. And here they are, chest puffed out. Ugh. My God is better. 
than all the gods of Egypt. My God is better than anything that those gods can think of, can do. We're free 400 years. And I think that we can relate to this. I really do. I think that there's times in our lives in which we look at our lives and we see God just show up and we're like, ha, 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 God's on my side. You know, we get that like, yes, God just showed up in a huge way and I'm so pumped and I'm so excited and God's here. I, I honestly can think of a time in my own life. You know, I said I've, I've gone overseas to Russia to do some missions, and I had this one interpreter. Her name was Masha. Uh, Masha is this great woman. Uh, she was a lot of fun. And, and I remember the first time I met her, she goes, Dustin, I'm going to be your interpreter. I said, great. And she goes, just don't witness to me. <laughs> too bad. <laughs> She's like, I will never accept the Lord. I said, mm, too bad. And so I start praying for Masha, and I start praying with Masha, and Masha has to, I love it, because every time I went to go give a message, she had to interpret it word for word, and I'm like, not only are you hearing the gospel, but you're giving it, you just don't know it. Like, I thought it was really funny, and so, but the whole point was, after two weeks of me being in this one spot, I was going to a camp, and I was going to be leading this camp, and so I'm looking at Masha, and she, I'm like, Masha, you got to come to camp, I need an interpreter. I need you to hear Jesus more, Masha. And Masha goes, I can't go to camp, my parents won't let me. And I go, mm try again. She goes back to her parents three, four times. They keep telling me, Dustin, I can't go to camp. They won't let me. And I remember being in this place, downtown Pskov, uh, the part of Russia that I was in, and I remember we were downtown in the middle of everything, and I just go, Masha, stop. I'm tired of hearing excuses. I go, I'm going to pray. I'm going to pray that God's going to get you to camp, and you're going to go to camp. It's going to happen right now. And Masha goes, <laughs> no. And I said, yeah, I'm going to do it. And I get down on my knees and I pray. It was not a long prayer. It was not a huge prayer. It wasn't anything overly like, oh, Lord. Like, I just said, God, Masha needs to go to this camp. You know she needs to go to this camp. She needs to hear you. She needs to be with you. You're going to make this happen. It was something along those lines. I said, amen. And I got up from my knees. And I looked at Masha square in the face and said, call your mom. You're going to camp. And she goes, no. And I said, call your mom. I don't think you understand how big my God is, but he's going to change your mom's heart right now. Now, this was probably the first time in my uh, Christian life that I said, said God is going to do something. And I'm sitting there internally or externally. I'm like, yeah, 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 yeah. Internally, I'm like, oh, God, oh, God, oh, God, oh, God, oh, God. This doesn't work. <laughs> I'm so screwed. But Masha calls her mom. And she goes, mom, can I go to camp? And, I, and her mom just, I can hear her yelling. Now, it's all in Russian. I, I don't hear exactly what they're saying. But I can hear her yelling. And then Maja hangs up her phone, and she goes, my mom is tired of me asking. And she says that if I clean my room and do my chores, that I can go to camp. And then I just exhaled. I'm like, oh, this is so great. And I'll tell you, my chest puffed up, and I was walking tall, and I was like, that's my God. That is my God that is doing this. I prayed out of boldness, and now I'm walking out of boldness, and I was pumped, and I was excited. And Masha accepted the Lord at that camp. It had nothing to do with me. It had everything to do with God. But I'll tell you that when God shows up in a big way, you have no choice but to say, I am excited. I am bold. I'm ready. It is the greatest feeling in your entire life. And it, it just feels like no matter what Satan throws at you, right, no matter what he does, it just doesn't matter. 
The problem is this. Much like the Israelites, you might be walking boldly, but things can always change. Verse 10 says this. As Pharaoh approached, the Israelites looked up, and there were the Egyptians marching after them. They were terrified and cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, was it because there were no graves in Egypt that you brought us to the desert to die? What have you done to us by bringing us out of Egypt? Didn't we say to you in Egypt, leave us alone. Let us serve the Egyptians. And it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the desert. See, this small section, they go from walking boldly to, are you kidding me? Are you for real right now? There's Egypt, dude. Chariots and everything. Like, I, I look at it like, now, all right, maybe you don't understand what a chariot looks like. Imagine you're walking out with your church, right? We're going somewhere. We, God is calling us somewhere. He's leading the way. And all of a sudden, a bunch of people show up in pickup trucks with, with machine guns mounted on the back. Are you freaking kidding me right now? Machine guns on pickup trucks? We're sitting here walking. We've got all kinds of animals. Our herds are with us. Where is no way we're getting away from this? We got old people and young kids. We're screwed. Moses, you did this. They look to him and they say, What are you doing? But before they complain to Moses, which, by the way, totally bad thing. I love that when something bad happens, I think that from time to time we look at other people and go, your fault. Right? We don't fully accept the fact that we consciously made a choice. We just look at somebody else and go, your fault. I, I did what I was supposed to do. You, you didn't hold up. But before they do that, they do the right thing. They cry out to God. Now, that is ultimately a good thing. It says that they cried out to God. That is a great thing. There's no problem when we cry out to God. In fact, God wants to hear us cry out to him when we're struggling, when we're in danger, when there's something there that we can't handle. God wants to hear us cry out. What God doesn't want to hear is us complain to somebody else. God doesn't want to see us point the finger at somebody else. I love their response. They look at Moses and they're just like, were there not enough graves in Egypt that you brought us out here? It's freaking Egypt. It's Egypt. Of course there were graves. Their graves are still here. Their graves are, we still look at them. We go in there. We're still exploring the graves. It's crazy that they get, they get sassy. They get testy. They're getting sarcastic with Moses. They're like, were there not enough graves that you had to bring us out here? Of course there were. They're just looking for somebody to blame. You see, here's the thing. Even when we're walking in boldness, even when we're walking out and we feel like God is on our side and nothing can stop us, our old life will always pursue us. There's something in our past. There's something that sin, there's this, that, that lifestyle, whatever it is, there's something there that is always going to pursue us, that thing that is always going to come after us. I don't know, maybe, maybe that drink is still there. Right? Maybe the internet, when you're alone at home and in a dark room, is still there. The language that you've been trying to kick forever, and you feel like you've got to hold on it, is still there. Your pride, it's still there. Your lust, it's still there. Your anger, your anxiety, your discontentment, it's still there. Your what is still there. 
there's something in your past that is always going to pursue you. The sins of your past are always going to pursue you. And just when you think you've got a hold on it is when they're going to show up. And here's the fun fact, guys. It's not just the sins in the life of our past, but we still have sins in a life in the future. We are not perfect. Now, we are going through what you call a sanctification process in which we are trying to become perfect and we're made right and justified in the Lord. Now, we are forgiven of our sin, but that doesn't mean that there is no sin. The sins of your past and the sins of your future will always pursue you. Now, why is it that we can look back at this lifestyle and say, I, I still kind of want it? Now, there's things in my past. I, guys, I, I preach this, and I feel like when I was making this sermon, a lot of it was pointed at me. A lot of it was, going, wow, I really needed to hear this. You know, and I look back at my life sometimes when things get tough, and I go, you know, that looks really good. That looks really, really good. And I remember, I can think back on that time when I look at it, and I go, that, that slavery that I was sold into for sin, that was awful. It was horrible. Some of the darkest moments of my life. But yet when I look back on it, when what's tough lies before me, I look back and go, yes, that sounds so much better. That's exactly what the Israelites are doing here. They look at Moses and they go, I would rather be a slave. I would rather go back into slavery than to pursue forward through the challenge of whatever God has before me. We all do this. Maybe I just do this. I don't know. You guys listen up. All right, so I, I, I feel like we all do this. The rest of you sinners listen. All right, here we go. Why do we do this? Because I feel like God sometimes leads us where we don't want to go. God takes us places where we don't want to go. Oh, that's honest. Like, you know, I, I, we'll get there, but I didn't want to come to South Carolina. I really didn't. I grew up in California, y'all. I was 20 minutes from Malibu. I'd go walk on the beach and have this nice breeze. No humidity. Oh, so awful here. Uh, I love it. It's really amazing, guys. South Carolina is beautiful, and I love it, but there's, there's the beaches in Malibu. Anyway, God leads us sometimes where we don't want to go. I, I feel like that's a big reason. Another reason is God asks us to do things that are hard. Like, I, 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 like honestly, God says, I need you to go here. We're like, no, 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 no. You see, uh, Clemson and Georgia are playing, and I can't make it to church on Sunday because I'm going to sleep in. Or because I was out too late. No, 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 no. God, I know you want me to go talk to that person at work about who you are and, and share your love with them, but that, that might get me in trouble with my boss. Lord, I, I know that I should go take that homeless person out for dinner, but frankly, that doesn't work with my current plans. We, we don't do things because it feels like they're too hard. And lastly, our hearts are not set on the things of God but our hearts are set on the things of the flesh. Like these are reasons why we look back at our old lives when, when our sin pursues us and we just go, that looks really good. That looks really good. Our hearts are not set on God. They're set on the flesh. So what do we do? What do we do? When, when we're looking back and we see that our old life is looking pretty good and we have no way forward. I love this part of the scripture. It is one of my favorite parts. You know, the Israelites cry out to Moses, and Moses is trying to figure out what he's going to do, and he's about to give an amazing hype speech. I love speeches. I know that sounds really boring, but I do love speeches. When you've got a speech that is like, 
through your bones exciting and through your bones awesome and somebody's just pumping you up, like I get behind that. And one of my favorite speeches of all time comes from the movie Braveheart. Now, if you're a man in here and you have seen the movie Braveheart, you may know what speech I'm about to go through. If you're a man in here have not seen the movie Braveheart, rethink your life's choices. But it's set, let me set this up. So the Scots are in, under basically enslavement. Uh, they're under the England is controlling Scotland, and they want to be free. And they, up to this point, the Scottish are fighting small battles. And now for the first time, the Scots assemble as this huge army, and they're going to face another English army, something that they have no hope of defeating, something that they look at and they go, there's no way. This isn't going to happen. And so they start to walk away. And this man named William Wallace rides up, and he says this. He goes, sons of Scotland, I am William Wallace. <clears throat> yes. And a soldier speaks up and says, William Wallace is seven feet tall. Now, Mel Gibson plays this role. And William Wallace was also historically not seven feet tall. That is a lie. And Wallace follows up with this. He goes, yes, I've heard. He kills men by the hundreds, and if he were here, he'd consume the English with fireballs from his eyes and bolts of lightning from his rear. I am William Wallace, and I see a whole army of my countrymen here in defiance of tyranny. You have come to fight as free men, and free men you are. What would you do with that freedom? Will you fight? And another soldier looks out at the English army and says, fight? No. No, we will run and we will live. I fight and you may die. Run and you'll live, at least for a while. And dying in your beds many years from now, would you be willing to trade all the days from this day to that for one chance, just one chance, to come back here and tell your enemies that they may take your lives, but they will never take your freedom? And they all get excited, and they go to war, and many of them die. Many, many of them die. But they defeat the English in that battle, and they fight, and the movie ends with the freedom. I love this speech, guys. It is, it is something that when I hear it, I'm just like, <laughs> yes, let me do something dangerous. Right? Like, I'm like, I want to go. I may have bought a sword after hearing that. But guys, now it's time for Moses' speech. It's time for Moses to go, this is what I have for you. Now remember, the Israelites go, God, we need you. Moses, this is your fault. God, we need you. Are, are there not enough graves? Are you kidding me? And they run to Moses and they say, what are we going to do? Verse 13. It says, Moses answered the people, do not be afraid. Stand firm and you will see the deliverance the Lord will bring for you today. The Egyptians you see today, you will never see again. The Lord will fight for you. You only need be still. What a speech. Three sentences. William Wallace had like a whole monologue. Moses, three sentences. Three, that's it. He goes, ah, okay. <sighs> be still and follow me. You guys were... When we look at our old lives and our old lives are pursuing us and they're coming upon us and we feel like there's nothing that we can do, Moses tells us in three short sentences exactly what we need to do. Exactly what we need to do. The only way that we can stop 
and understand that God has got this. And I love how he opens this, right? The first thing he says to them is stand firm. Stand firm. You keep trying to do stuff. No, 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 no. Plant your feet. Stand firm. Ephesians chapter 6 verse 13 says this, Therefore, put on the full armor of God, so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground, and after you have done everything, to stand. You see, Ephesians knows what's going on here. He's saying, put on your armor, put on the tools that God has equipped you with, plant your feet, and stand firm. Moses is telling them this 1,400 years before that. Stand firm firm. Plant your feet and let me work. Let God work. The next thing that Moses says is that you need to choose faith in God over the fear of what lies ahead. I get it, guys. You you need to to choose God, not fear. Now, I said I was going to talk about me coming here, and and, and I'll tell you that this story is probably the hardest time of my life. I know it's the hardest time of my life. I told you this story about how I had this long journey to become a pastor, something that I really felt like God was calling me into. See, and the reason why I am here in South Carolina today is not because it was something that I planned, but it was something that God planned. See, I was married. I had this wife, and I had this job. I had this, this great pastor job that I had, and I had a house. I lived in California. I lived in California. Just kidding. I really do love South Carolina. But I had it all taken away from me. See, my marriage ended. My marriage ended, and then I lost my job. And then I lost my house. And I lost my finances. I lost everything. I felt like I had just fallen back into my high school years. When you're looking at life and you're just going, I'm overwhelmed and I have nothing. I lost it all. And a buddy of mine out here in South Carolina, a fellow Raider fan, goes, hey, I'm going to Oakland. Now, Sacramento's about two hours from Oakland. And he goes, I'm going to Oakland for a Raider game. Do you want to come? If you know me at all, the answer is always yes. I will always go to a Raider game, always. And so we go, and he, he hears about how my life is falling apart, and he goes, I've got it. Come to South Carolina. I, I run this Christian uh, after-school daycare program. I need a guy like you. And I look at him with all the, the strength that I can muster, and I say, no, no way. I go to South Carolina. Where is that, by the way? I assume it's under North Carolina, but, like, really, is it on the coast? Is it, like, where, where is it? And he talks to me, and he convinces me to come out for a week to visit. He goes, I just need some help for a week. He actually went on vacation. He went on a cruise and left me to run his company for a week. And I was like, <laughs> here I am, <laughs> broken, desperate for help, doing something that I never thought I would do again. And I go home, and he calls me up, and he goes, what'd you think? And they go, mm-hmm. He goes, now before you answer, by the way, I was leaning no. I was like, there's no way I'm going out there. I really just wanted to run back home, my tail between my legs, move back into my mom's place, and feel sorry for myself and figure out what I needed to do. That was my plan. That was what I was going to do. And he goes, before you tell me what it is you need to do, just understand that my wife has cancer. I just found out yesterday. He goes, I need to know whether or not you're coming, because if you're not, I have to find somebody who will. And I went from going no to thinking about it for 30 seconds 
And the only thing I can remember, the only thing I can look back at in that moment is I remember looking at God in those 30 seconds and praying, going, Lord, what do you want me to do? And he goes, Dustin, all I need you to do is serve. Just show up and serve me. And I said, sure. In 30 seconds, I said, yeah, I'll come out. I'll give you a year of my life, enough time to get your wife past cancer, and I'll help you out. And I moved here two weeks later, South Carolina. Thankfully, because I was kicked out of my old house, I had everything all packed up. It was easy to go. <laughs> and so there I was, getting in a trailer, moving across the country. You see, what I had to realize was that it wasn't about looking forward out of fear, but it was having enough faith in God to know that he's going to get me through whatever it is that he has before me. Taking me to a new state that I knew nothing about. Taking me somewhere that, that I had no understanding of what it was. And I, and I honestly say, I have no hopes and no desire, no dream of ever going back to California. I love the South, y'all. Like, this is amazing. I love it here. God has blessed me with a great job. He's given me a wonderful fiance. He's given me a new life, a new house. But it all started because I didn't look forward in fear, but I chose the path that God had laid before me. Another thing that Moses talks about, he says, going back isn't an option. Going backwards to that old life is not an option. And it's funny because I was preparing this sermon. I was doing one of those Facebook scrolls, you know, and I was looking at things and I saw this story about Cortez. I was just randomly going through my Facebook and there it was. I love history. And it, and it talks about how Cortez is, is uh, this man that went into Mexico to go conquer Mexico. And it says that Spain had been trying a number of times. And every time Spain had tried, they failed. They always got back in their boats and ran home. And so Cortez, what does he do? He shows up. He brings his crew. He brings his boats. He brings everything he needs. And the first thing that he does, he turns around and he says, burn the boats. Burn the boats. There is no going back. There is no retreat. Burn the boats. That's exactly what Moses is saying here. He goes, you're never going to see these Egyptians again. There is no going back. Burn your boats. And the last thing Moses says is be still. Hold on. Still and firm. Choose faith in God. Going back. Be, st be still and stand firm are kind of like the same thing. Okay. You have to forgive me. Moses is 80 years old, guys. I think he's going a little senile here because uh, he repeats himself. No, there it is. Be still. See, Moses knew that we needed to understand this in a multitude of ways. Stand firm and be still. Psalm 46.10, be still and know that I'm God, right? Be still and know that I'm God. Moses knew you need to plant your feet, stand firm, and then once again at the end, be still. Allow me to work. Look to me for your help. Love me. Choose me. The problem with that, guys, is it's hard. It's really hard to choose that sometimes, to stand still, to, to choose God over the fear of moving forward. Right? This, these things are hard. I, I look at the Apostle Paul. Who, by the way, it's like if you were to put like on a grand scheme of things of like where Paul stands, it's like Jesus and Paul. Dude wrote like a third of the New Testament. All right. He's the guy that traveled the Roman world not once, not twice, three times to plant churches. Three times to be used by God. 
And he wrote letters to a lot of people. And he wrote one to the Romans. This is what he says in chapter 7, verse 14 of Romans. And I love this. And let's see how well I know the English language because this is going to be tough. It says, we know that the law is spiritual, but I am unspiritual. Sold as a slave to sin. I do not understand what I do. For what I want to do, I do not do. But I hate what I do. And if I do what I do not want to do, I agree that the law is good. As it is, it is no longer I myself who do it, but it is sin living in me. For I know that good itself does not dwell in me, that it is in my sinful nature. For I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. For I do not do the good I want to do, but the evil I do not want to do, this I keep on doing. Now, if I want to, now, if I want to do what I do not want to do, it is no longer I who do it, but sin living in me that does it. Paul went a very complicated and long way of saying, my heart is to serve the Lord. My heart is to serve God, to not look back at my life, to not look back at fear, but to understand that he calls me to this, and this I'm going to do. Or not do, but do. And he says, but over here, my flesh, the flesh that tells me this is what my heart or not my heart, but my being wants to do, this evil thing, this sin, this nature, this is what I actually do. I actually give in. I actually struggle. I am broken. I don't always look forward in the promises that God has, but instead I look forward to my brokenness. And Paul is explaining his struggle. And why? Why do we go through this? Why, is, why can't God just change us? When we, when we change our hearts, when we accept him into our lives, why can't he just go, boom, you're done, it's over? I think part of it is the relationship. I think a huge part of it is relationship. I think a huge part of it is an, is an understanding that we still need him in our lives. We have to look to him. If he were to say, boom, you're perfect, you're good, we no longer have need for God. And that's not what he wants. So why do we do this? Or what are we supposed to do? The book of James. It's one of my favorite uh, sections of scripture. Book of James chapter 1 says, Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. That's why we do this. God says when you go through trials, you consider it joy. Why? Because that joy is going to lead, or that trial is going to lead to perseverance. And that perseverance is going to make you whole. That perseverance is going to make you strong. That perseverance is going to give you everything that you need to make it through. That is what God is saying. No matter what blue screen comes up, no matter what's going on, Satan shows up and he says, no, I ain't having it. You will persevere through this and go. No matter what trial faces you, you will ask and I will give and you will lack nothing. Nothing. Oh, if that doesn't get you excited, if that doesn't get like your heart just bold and, and, and get your chest puffed out, like I don't know what does, guys. Knowing that in your trial, when you're supposed to have joy in it, you persevere through, I push through, and God says, ask, you will receive, and you will have everything that you need. 
See, our old life is always going to pursue us. But we will always find victory in following the ways of God. You have to understand. You look back at that old life and you say, not today, get behind me. I choose to look forward in the victory of Christ. And that's what Moses is telling his people. Stop looking back. Stop saying, I wish I was still enslaved. How dare you bring me out here? This is your fault. Instead, Moses is saying, look forward and watch God work. Look forward and watch God show up. Now, you would think that after 10 plagues, that after God showing up repeatedly over and over and over again, you would think that the Israelites would look upon the Egyptian army, pull out their launch chairs, grab a pina colada, sit back and go, God's got this. I'm going to watch and I'm going to observe. But that's not what they do. Because their hearts do what they do not want to do. Instead of doing what they should do, they do not do the things that God calls them to do. They look back, and Moses is saying, quit looking back, burn your boats, and look forward. Look at the promises of God. Now, you guys get how the story ends. This is the story of the Exodus. At this point, Moses goes, well, this is whoa, incredible. I love this. Gives his huge speech to the Israelites, right? Hey, come on, guys, rally up. Here we go. Stand firm, be strong. You know, don't look at What does Moses do? to God. He runs to the Lord. He's crying out. And God says, well, calm down, you baby. Why are you crying out to me? Do you know? That speech you just gave was awesome. I gave you a magical stick. Do something with it. He says there's a time for prayer, Moses. And yes, prayer is good, but there's also a time for action. Get out and do something about it. And he calls Moses, go out, raise your staff, split the Red Sea. What? Okay, frogs, I get, locusts, yeah, lice and all that stuff. Okay, you killed some people? Like, God. Splitting the Red Sea? Why don't you just make some boat show up or something? I mean, maybe we just walk on it. It would be easier. No, split it. Raise the stuff. <laughs> That's exactly what God does. He tells Moses, you raise your staff. You split the Red Sea. Now, here's the cool part. God doesn't have to use Moses. Okay, God could have just split the Red Sea. He doesn't have to use Moses. But here's why he does. God wants to work in his children. God wants to work in his children. God didn't need Moses. He chose to use him. Guys, when you choose God and you choose to step out in faith instead of look back in fear, God will use you in a powerful and mighty way. When you get down on your knees and you pray for a young girl to go to camp, even though her parents have repeatedly said no, and you step out in boldness, and you know for a fact that God is, is telling you that this is going to happen, you know that you God is going to show up in a big way. When you can look at your life and say, yes, this is calling me, and yes, slavery looks awesome, but this over here is hard. When you know that there's a way and you persevere through, it says you will lack nothing. God will show up. And that's what he does. I do not think any 
people, not the Egyptians, not Moses, not the Israelites, not any Joe that was looking at the side going, I think a war's about to happen. Let's see, let's see what happens. Nobody there expected Moses to raise his staff and split the Red Sea. That was not on anybody's radar. And he does. And it says that they cross on dry ground. Dry ground, guys. Like I said, see, now, listen. I've spilled my coffee before on my way into church. When you spill it in the dirt, it makes mud. Okay? I've seen, you know, lakes and stuff when I put my feet in and they touch the bottom. It, it's mud. When you were to remove the water, it's still mud. It's still wet. Not today. It says that they walk on dry ground. In fact, it says it three times. And so the Israelites at nighttime go and cross the Red Sea. And it says that God takes the pillar of clouds and he places the pillar of clouds in between the Israelites and the Egyptians. Now, why would God take that pillar? I think if we look back on why God would use a fluffy pillar of clouds, it's so cute and soft. Why would he lead the Israelites out of Egypt with clouds? It could have been fire the whole time. But I think I look at that pillar and I go, when you're following a pillar through a desert, a pillar of clouds, what does it do? It provides shade. The Israelites are walking through the desert in shade. God is, is already serving them and helping them. And now he's taking that same pillar of clouds, right? And he puts it between the Israelites and the Egyptians. And what does it do? It causes shade. It says that the, Isra the Egyptians couldn't see what was going on. It got between them. God got between them. They were in darkness. Now, on the flip side of that, if you've ever seen the sun shine through clouds, it is one of the prettiest things you've ever seen. And it says as that pillar is there, the Egyptians were in shade and the Israelites were seeing the light. It lit up their path. It lit up their way as they crossed the Red Sea. And so they start crossing the Red Sea and they start going through. And I, oh man, I don't know, like, I, I don't know, as a kid, I would, maybe as a five-year-old, I'd be like, this is the coolest thing ever. As an adult, when I've lived life and I go, this is dangerous. <laughs> Look at that, water, <laughs> shouldn't do that. <laughs> I'm going to run now. Like, I ought to be sprinting. That might be the one time in my life that you might actually see me sprint. Running for my life, going, get me through here. But that's what the Israelites do. They go through. And as the night carries on and the Israelites make it across, God removes the cloud and he says, hey, Moses, hey, Israelites, watch this. And they come in. And you think they get scared, and they do. But as the Egyptians come in and the Israelites go out, God says, hey, Moses, 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 do that thing again. God does that. Do that again one more time. Moses goes, okay. And it says that the Red Sea falls and crushes and kills the Egyptians. All of them. Not some of them. All of the Egyptians that pursued the Israelites are dead. And it says that their bodies wash up on floor and these slaves are now seeing their conquerors, their owners, the people who tortured them and ruled them are dead at their feet on the shore. You see, we can look back and love that life and see that life, or we can look forward and watch God work. Now, guys, there's people today, I know it, there are people today that feel like they are the Israelites. They're stuck between the Red Sea and the Egyptians looking down upon them. And you're either looking back at your, going into your life of slavery or you're going to look forward and watch God work. And this requires work, guys.
does. This requires faith. This is tough. This is hard. But this is easy. It's what we know. It's what we can expect. So there's no unknown in this. You have to make that decision. Which way are you going to walk? A lot of you guys know me and my dad. My grandpa's been in the hospital for two months now. Two months. And I was talking with my dad earlier this week, and he's, we've come to realize that my grandpa might not make it. In fact, it looks like he probably won't. And I'm okay with that. My grandpa, he had a stroke 30 years ago. He's been paralyzed. He's, he's lived a good life, but he basically lives to watch baseball games or whichever football team was winning that year. That's, that's been his life. He's 86. He's lived a good life. For the condition that he's in, it is time for him to go. But that's not what's hard about it. What's hard about it for my dad, what's hard about it for me, is the fact that we both know that my grandpa is not a believer. My grandpa does not know the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what makes it hard. That I know that I may never see my grandpa again in this life or on the other side of eternity. I may not have that chance. And my dad is going through that right now as he's by my grandpa's side today, witnessing to him, praying for him, trying to show him the light. And this is something that my dad and I have talked about. That, that you know, we keep talking about God is in control. We can either look back and say, you know what, this sucks. You're not showing up. I'm looking back at this life because this follows through. This comes through. This I can trust in at least and an understanding and knowing, yeah, it sucks, but I know what's there. Or we can trust in the fact that God knows what he's doing in my grandpa. And whether or not my grandpa becomes a believer, we know that God is going to be honored and glorified through it. We have to. None of my family on my dad's side are believers. Virtually none of them. And I hope and I pray that if my grandpa does not become a believer, that maybe the loss of, the him, loss of him gets them to start thinking about eternity to start thinking about an afterlife, to start thinking about what they need to do to prepare themselves. And maybe, yes, we lose my grandpa, and it'll devastate my dad and I, but maybe we gain the rest of the family. I don't know. I don't know what's in God's plan, but what I do know is I can't look back. I know that I can only look forward, and I have to trust in God's plan. I have to know that he is going to lead us through. It's easy to look back, but remember, we're called to burn our boats. We're called to live a life of faith and to move forward. Last week, <laughs> I was sitting where you guys were, and Ricky started talking about this plan, this vision that God had given him. God spoke to him and said, I'm going to do big things through ID Collective. And I remember sitting there, and I was getting all kinds of excited. Because like you guys, I, I was sitting there going, okay, what are we doing, Rick? What are we doing? And the moment he said, God told me, I was like, doesn't matter. Doesn't matter what we're doing. No matter where we're going. If God told you, I will follow. If God told you, I will follow. It's not going to be easy. It's going to be hard. It's going to require more. It's going to require more time. It's going to require more work. It's going to require more prayer. It's going to require more leaning upon God. I'm not going to look back and say, but we've always done it this way. No, 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 we're going to do it this way because this is the way God calls us to do. We're going to step out in faith. And I remember hearing Ricky talk about that. And I remember getting so excited. As he kept going, I was like, yes, Ricky, yes, yes, keep going, keep going. And I feel like he was talking to me. You guys, if, if we want to see the promises that God has made for I.D. Clifton, if we want to see the promises that God has made for you in your life, 
If we want to see what stepping out in faith really looks like, you cannot look back. You have to look forward. Yes, that old life calls, and it is like a siren song at times. But there is nothing more sweet, nothing more courageous, nothing more loving, nothing more whole than to look at the Lord and to step out of your fear and step out in faith and say, God, I will follow you because that is what you have called me to. Guys, that's my hope for us this week. That's my desire is that we can step out as a church, that we can step out as individuals and we can say, God, today I choose you. Today I choose faith and that we continue to make that decision every single day. Let me pray for us. Lord, I'm just, I'm honored that you chose me to be up here this morning. Lord, I'm honored that I got to be up here and talk about what it is that you put on my heart. Lord, I'm so thankful for this church and for Ricky and and just for everyone here that is so loving and kind and has accepted me as this lonely, lost Californian in the South, not knowing which way is up or down, but being accepted as as just part of your family, somebody who loves you. I, I can't thank you enough for that, Lord. Lord, I, I pray, I pray that as we go through our lives today, as we, as we leave church today, as we get ready to keep on living, Lord, that we, we don't look back at our life of sin. We, we know our life is going to pursue us, Lord. We know that it's always going to be there, but I pray that we look forward, that we choose faith instead of fear, Lord, and that we choose you. Father, that we choose you. Lord, I pray that you work in a mighty way in, our, in each of us as individuals and as a church. Lord, I I pray for Ricky as he leads us and guides us. May you prepare him and guide him as as a, a, a father of a new baby and his wife as a mother. Lord, may you give him energy, Lord, energy and just the ability to continue to lead. God, you can do this through Ricky. You can do this through us. May we step up as a church in a big way because we choose faith, because we choose you. Lord, we need you. And I ask that as we step out in boldness, may you meet us there. Lord, we love you and we thank you. And we say these things in your precious name. Amen. Thank you for listening this week. To learn more about ID Clifton, including our gathering times, small groups, and events coming up, visit us at idclifton.com. Again, thank you for listening to the ID Clifton podcast. And remember, love God and love others. Thank you.